the only one there. What I want to talk about tonight, um, I think, Sam, your conversation with me spawned this. And I've been thinking about it, and I've talked about it a little bit in here before, and I'm tr- I tried to get um, away from it. And I thought, well, Lord, I've already talked about some of this stuff. They're going to be bored to tears. And uh, <clears throat> I couldn't get away with it. So I'm going to try my best to deal with a topic that's um, that's in particular important to uh, where you guys are at. I first started thinking about the importance of this type of uh, lesson uh, in a conversation with uh, my niece. Uh, She had a guy online she was talking with, and he was asking her questions. He was an apostolic kid, and he went to college and, uh, and this is what you'll face in college. This is what your friends are facing. This is what some of you have already been on uh, the college campus before. Uh, this is what you're facing. Kevin's really helping me back there. I appreciate you. Um, and basically, he took a philosophy class, and it rocked him. Uh, he, he got introduced to some ideas and began to think that ultimately, uh, I think anyone that takes a philosophy class Philosophy students shouldn't be able to say anything to anybody when they take one class in philosophy. I think they should have to sign a waiver that they will keep their mouth shut until they get to the end of their philosophy training. Because the first semester, they teach you to be critical and poke holes in everything. And then by the end of the four years, if you're going to study philosophy, you get to the end and you realize the emptiness and the bankruptcy at the end of most of the philosophical systems being taught on campuses today. When they get there, then they're looking for answers again, and maybe they'll pick up the Bible again, right, because they see the end of that. So I was talking to a, a one um, young man uh, for my niece. She said, Uncle Bobby, this guy's just rattling me with stuff. And so I started talking about, you know, the definition of faith and whether or not Kierkegaard's, you know, definition of faith was correct. A whole bunch of garbage that really only a few of us look at ever. And so uh, and after, at the end of it, he was saying, well, uh, I said, you're, you're, you have the wrong concept of faith. You're, you're picking up liberal definitions of faith that are not even uh, close to what the Bible says faith is. Faith is the belief in something to be true based on my experience, based on what I know, based on things that I can, I can test at some level. Did, when I, like when I married my wife, did I know she would never te- uh, cheat on me? Well, of course not. But I did know enough about her to trust her. And faith could be translated uh, trust from the Greek to say, I know enough about God to trust him too, just like I trust my wife. And so that's not based on uh, in, you know, some definitions of, of faith, which is a blind leap. And so he started back and forth. And then finally, I just, I quit. You know, you have to get off the defense and get on the offense. And so that's what I want to do tonight. Uh, I want to teach you how to be on the offense. And I'll give you one more uh, scenario because I think, I feel like tonight, this is kind of what I'm dealing with. You're going to be talking to people like a young lady, that uh, Tobias and Felicia. You've heard me talk about her before. They were witnessing to her and and uh, they were trying to get her into church, and she watched their life. And the big thing for her was watching them go through crisis and sorrow and some setbacks and trying to struggle with understanding God. And she said, I couldn't explain the, why, the reason you didn't get bitter and withdraw and move away from God. Couldn't explain it. So I had to start taking your views of God seriously. And so she starts asking questions. And so they said, can you come over? Because <laughs> she's asking some like, questions on the Old Testament. We, don't, you know, you, we need some help with. I said, sure, I'd love to come over. So we're doing the Bible study, and I'm talking to her. And, well, look at this passage. and Look at the context here. And, I, and then finally, I just, you know, you have to get off the defense. And I got on the offense. And I said, well, look, are you comfortable giving up terms and ideas and concepts like justice? This is a cosmic accident. If it's a cosmic accident, there are no shoulds and, and should nots. This is a cosmic accident. We're all animals, and, and we just kind of operate by instinct, and nothing is really wrong. I said, are you, com- uh, are you comfortable giving up justice and love and you know, ideas about truth, the way we should act and relate to one another? And she said, well, no. No, I've tried to be an atheist. I realize I can't do it. My question is, is can I believe the Bible? And so from there, we started a a good conversation. So this is what I want to kind of address tonight. uh, And I called it Ecclesiastes and Current uh, current Issues uh, in College Life. And by college, I I mean not just college, but also college and career or the culture of the age that we're in. 
Okay? Now, why this lesson? Because uh, ultimately, we're in a new climate. And every generation has to ultimately uh, deal with their climate. And what's fascinating to me is, is that the, the position that we're in today is the same thing that was happening in Solomon's day. All right, and I'll show you what that means in just a moment. But what I'll, I'll give you the teaser up front that Ecclesiastes, the function of Ecclesiastes, has the same function and purpose and power for today. All right, and I, I would tell you if you're witnessing to a friend who's a skeptic or an atheist or somebody that's on the college campus, one of the best things you could do is not say start out with let's have a Bible study on the book of Acts. Now, if they're Christian or they respect the Bible, absolutely, that's where you go. But if it's something else, you say, let's have a Bible study on the book of Ecclesiastes. And you tell them to read that and then let's meet. I promise you, you're going to have some powerful conversations uh, that spawn out of that particular thing. So uh, let's look at the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to, I'm going to read verses 1, uh, 12 through 15. I'll do a little reading tonight. I hope I don't bore you too much. We'll see. I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that were done. And, and if you underline in your Bible, this is where you should underline under the sun. Right. He said, I, I, I uh, search out all things concerning which were done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of men uh, to be exercised therewith. So God has given us what? Sore travail. Okay, hath God given unto the sons of man to be, and we're going to be exercised by sore travail. And I have seen all the works that are done, and there it is again, under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and vexation of the spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting uh, cannot be numbered. Can't find it. Okay, how many of you say these are my life verses? I read these every day. They really encourage me. No, of course not, right? This is terrible. And it's meant to start out being terrible because Solomon is looking at a particular uh, view of life. So what, what, what is he doing? What's the purpose uh, of this book? Well, the book of Ecclesiastes is basically a book about the meaning of life. Can you find meaning to life? And this is what Solomon is asking uh, in his particular work. And it addresses the questions that force themselves on us. And sometimes it's in moments of crisis and suffering. I don't care what the crisis is. Every, every time there's something like September 11th or some shooting, they're going to find some preacher and they're going to get him on Larry King or something like that. And, and they're going to ask the same, forgive me, trite questions again and again and again. Now, where is God in this? And, and why would a good God allow this suffering? Because there are moments in life where the periphery, peripheral rather, is pushed aside. Uh, Brother Mooney's great sermon right after September 11th uh, was a, a sermon entitled A View at Ground Zero. And he talked about the plays being shut down and the, no one was playing games in New York. And, and they couldn't because there are some things that are so catastrophic you can't get caught up in the, in the, the uh, distractions of life. There's a view at ground zero, he says, that pushes back everything else and forces you to deal with the reality of life. And that's the intention of the book of Ecclesiastes, to force upon the reader the, the uh, emotional and, and, and intellectual and even existential, the felt impact of these deep questions about life. Right? But not only in crisis and suffering, he also deals with issues of boredom and emptiness. And, I, and that's where I think a lot of where our culture is today. All right, so I'm going to talk about that in detail, so I won't say too much about that now. So let's, uh, let's look at, at this. Say, why should we uh, study this book? Well, if you understand what uh, the book of Ecclesiastes was, it was a book of apologetics for its day. Solomon wrote this book uh, as uh, one man said, and I think he's uh, spot on. <clears throat> Excuse me. He says it's a satire on the wisdom, wisdom material of its time. If you work through the, uh, um, I promise for all my practical people that are jumping ship, we're going to get to someplace practical. <laughs> Please hang on. I promise we'll get to someplace good. All right? But uh, it was a satire of wisdom literature. This is what you do. If you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, you can find snippets from uh, the ancient Near Eastern wisdom literature of his day. And this is what Solomon, by the way, there's a lot of heresy quoted in Ecclesiastes. 
And so that's why you have to be careful what you quote out of the book of Ecclesiastes. You have to understand why it's quoted and what he does, because this is what Solomon says. This sounds wise. I'll give you an example that no one really, if once you hear it, you'll go, oh, yeah, I don't believe that. Uh, he says this, um, eat, drink, and be merry because, you know, tomorrow we're going to die. And by the way, money answers everything. Now, it has a semblance of wisdom, right? At some point, you're like, yeah, money answers everything. I think I could use a little. Can I get a witness? Okay, good. All right, but we know ultimately that money doesn't answer everything, right? All right, and so what, what, what Solomon is saying is this looks wise. This looks wise. Is this how we should build our life? Is this how we should run a government? Should we just throw money at everything? Does that fix the hearts and issues of our culture and, and the hearts and minds of people? No, it doesn't fix everything. So what Solomon does is he's trying these things on and he's writing this material ultimately for the, for the young people that are coming into court to serve in the palace as some type of authority. And the reason he's doing that is because them walking into uh, the court, they would have been influenced by the worldview and the philosophy and the thinking of places like Egypt and Persia. And so Solomon, knowing this, writes this book as a way to train them for what they will face. Now, I will tell you what's happening today. It's the same thing that's happening um, on, on campuses today. It's the same thing that's being sold to us through the cultural uh, venues of entertainment. And I'm going to show you that the book of Ecclesiastes is incredibly contemporary, right? So he says, uh, you're going to be influenced like, by these things, so let's look at it. And what he does is uh, teach this book, and it becomes arrives like a bombshell to destroy all the false thinking uh, that would have been circulating uh, around these young people as they entered into um, the palace. Now, that's the reason I think this is powerful is because, and, and I think this is the challenge that the Lord gave me. Because I, I taught a little bit and ran, and God said, you didn't teach it enough. Because this is what they're going to be facing on college campuses when they get there. And if you consider yourself a teacher and a minister in the hyphen age group, and, and you need to take seriously your job of training them. And so I felt a little chastisement from the Lord, so that's why I brought it back uh, tonight. And I, I will we'll look at it in a little detail. All right, so I like what Peter Kreef says. He's a professor of philosophy at Boston College. He says this about uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, Ecclesiastes is the one book of the Bible modern man most needs to read for its lesson one. All right, he's talking about today. All right, he says, the rest of the Bible is lesson two. Right? He said, so you can't go into lesson two until you get lesson one. He says, modernity does not need lesson two because it doesn't heed lesson one. All right? What does he mean by lesson uh, one? He's talking about Genesis. Okay? He says, whenever I teach the Bible as a whole, speaking of today, I always begin with Ecclesiastes. He says, in another age, we can begin with God's beginning, Genesis. He says, but in this age, the age of man, we must begin where our patient is. We must begin with Ecclesiastes. He says the reason is, is they don't accept that the God of the Bible is real. And because they don't accept that, you have to press them for the consistency of where they're trying to live. And when you show them it's bankrupt, then they can go on to Genesis and say, dear Lord, I hope God is real. Because I can't live this way. All right, well, I'll show you what that uh, looks uh, like uh, in here. All right, the questions that are raised in the book of Ecclesiastes, I'll show you how contemporary it is. It's the same question that were, was raised by uh, the European uh, existentialists. Now, I'm throwing some material at you, and why in the world would I do that? All right, because when you're sitting in college, you're going to have these type of philosophers quoted to you. When you're talking to a friend who's a philosophy major or somebody that's steeped in, in some type of uh, scientific naturalism, somebody that uh, uh, believes what the professor says, you can know everything through science, through a and, and they're becoming atheists or at least agnostic. This is the type of things that you have to point out. All right, so the uh, same questions raised by people like Sartre and Nietzsche and Kierkegaard or Albert Camus and his uh, uh, theater of the absurd is the same thing that we see uh, in Ecclesiastes. All right, <clears throat> forgive me, went too fast. So what this means is, 
is when you give this book to somebody and they're in college, it's going to speak right to what they're facing uh, in the classroom every day. And that's why the book of Ecclesiastes is a message for all times, and it's a book that's great, like I said, to give your non-Christian friend. By the way, it's going to speak some things to us by the end of this. I feel like the Lord's given me a challenge uh, to give to you as well, right? To me as well, mine first. All right, so let's look at what God is in Ecclesiastes. Well, God in the book of Ecclesiastes could just be called uh, the God. And unless we found it in the Bible, we wouldn't even know that it's the God of Scripture. If you took Ecclesiastes out of the Bible, it doesn't say Yahweh. It's just the God. Right now, we know it's the God of the Bible because it's in the Bible. Right. But if it wasn't located in the scripture itself, we wouldn't know that. And by the way, this this is on purpose in terms of what Solomon is doing. And I'll show you what that uh, looks like. Peter Kreeft, again, who I like on Ecclesiastes, uh, says it this way. If I can get it to go. There we go. He says uh, about the uh, book of Song of or Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. I am teaching poetic books. I'll leave that alone. I better back out of that. <laughs> all right. He says it this way. He says it's all monologue. It's all one way. It's not dialogue. He said between God and man. He said yet it's still revelation. He says how is it divine revelation? He says, because it's inspired monologue. It's man talking, not a dialogue between God, uh, God speaking through man. It's God moving on Solomon to write certain things. He says, God in his providence has arranged for this one book of mere rational philosophy to be included in the canon of scripture because this too is divine revelation. Now, why is it a book of mere rational philosophy? Okay. He says it's divine revelation precisely in being the absence of divine revelation. Okay, I know. Work with me just a little bit. He says it's like the silhouette of the rest of the Bible. He says in this book, God reveals what life is when God doesn't reveal uh, to us what life is. He says this book is in the Bible to show us what it would be like to try to live life without God. Okay, you tracking with me? Okay, good. And there are two key uh, phrases in Ecclesiastes that if you don't get these two phrases, you will totally misunderstand what uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is about. And they recur again and again uh, uh, in the book of uh, Ecclesiastes. The first is this, under the sun, life under the sun. Now, that's a Hebrew idiom. Now, what is an idiom? Not an idiot. Don't elbow anybody. He's talking about you, man. That's exactly right. The statement of the words have a, uh, an intended meaning that's understood in the, in, in the culture. So, uh, for instance, give your hand in marriage is one of the easiest ones. It's like, what does that mean? All right, you bring someone with a foreign, from a foreign culture, they don't know what we mean by that. Well, she's going to give her hand in marriage. <laughs> what? Okay, but we know what it means. It means to swear. You know, we swear by our right hand, right? It means to give your all sworn in covenant, right? Or, or something like that, or, or the, like the stitching one. I never get this right. Yeah, hold your horses. What in the world? Uh, how do you hold your horses, right? That's exactly right. So it means wait a minute, right? All right, so what's another one? So I throw out another one. It's rain. What does that mean? Do you even know where that originated? It's raining cats and dogs. I don't know what that means. I mean, I know what it means, but I... Yes. And then when they fell off, it was raining cats. Oh, I see. Well, there you go. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> All right. How about this? Uh, somebody is not worth their salt. Have you heard that one? All right. So we've talked about that one before. So in the same way, in the book of Ecclesiastes, life lived under the sun is a Hebrew way of saying, you ready? Life lived as if there is no God. So under the sun, uh, without God, not under God's aegis and authority. So what he's saying is, is consider what life would be like if there was no eternity or if there was no God. All right. And that's what the book. Okay, I promise you, this is what the entire book of Ecclesiastes is about. 
If you miss that, you miss what uh, Solomon's intent, uh, intent was. So this is the universe of atheism, you know, like Dawkins or, or Daniel Dennett or Sam Harris or Bill Nye, the science guy. All right, all of those guys are ultimately living life and trying to make life as if there is no God. So without God and with no eternal reality at all. All right, and so the question for Solomon is, can you live uh, life this way? All right, the second uh, phrase that he's going to throw out at us is hevel in the Hebrew. And it means vanity or emptiness or meaningless or something like that in the Hebrew, vanity of vanities. It means there's no substance at all. And so what Solomon says is, what does life look like lived under the sun, as if there is no God? It's empty and it's meaningless. And he's going to force that on his reader again and again and again uh, in this uh, particular uh, study. Uh, so Ecclesiastes says, this is what I want you to do. Not only think about what it would be like as if there is no God, but uh, philosophically, but to feel what it would be like if there was no God existentially. And, and he says, I don't want you to only engage your head. And that's what you have to do. You have to force that guy to say, I see what you're saying. I know you love these philosophies, but what would it look like? sitting in that uh, living room with uh, Tobias and Felicia, asking that young lady, what would it be like to lose the concept of justice? What would it be to, to say, I, it's only animalistic drives that make me think I love my wife. I don't really love my wife. Can you give up the concept of love? It's just, you know, some secretion, and, and it's tricking me into thinking this is real. Are there no ideals by which we can govern life? Or is this all just a, a joke? All right, and that's what uh, Solomon is asking uh, uh, again and again. All right, so uh, what were, were Solomon's credentials? This is what he says. He says, I think I, I think I can do this study. He said, I commune with my own heart saying, lo, I am come to great estate. Some wealthy. Uh, I've gotten more wisdom than all they that have gone before me in Jerusalem. That's how you know it's Solomon. Uh, yea, my heart has great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So Solomon says, look, I have more available to me in terms of substance. He's saying it this way. I have, I'm richer than you could ever be. And because of God's touch on his life, he says I'm the wise, he was the wisest man, according to scripture, that ever lived, right? right? So in both accounts, he says, I am the one. You think you're smart? Listen to me. You think you have substance and opportunity? Listen to me because I have more substance and opportunity to explore the things that are available in life than anyone else uh, that's ever been. All right, so what was uh, ultimately uh, his strategy? Well, he says in 17 and 18, I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I'm going to try it all. He said, I perceive that this also is a vexation of spirit, for in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge shall increase sorrow. He says, the more you look at life, even if you're a wise person, and you give yourself to everything life has to offer, the more you learn, the more pain you have in your life. The more you study and understand, okay, I'll give you a concrete example. The more you understand about the reality of government, uh, Brother Waldron was uh, riding back on the plane, bumped into, a, uh, I'll just say, a, a conservative guy on the plane. And he says, the, he said, what's the biggest threat we're facing as Americans? Because he's been in, in D.C. for a long time. He says, we're, go we're going to have a fiscal collapse. We're going to bankrupt this nation. We're going to destroy it. He said, and there is no will, there's no desire in Washington to deal with the issue. He said, there's no backbone whatsoever, and America's headed for disaster. He said, that's why I'm retiring. I'm retiring this year. And Brother Waldron was like, well, you know, you, you're a good voice. We'd like to have you stay. And he said, well, you just can't get, you can't get anything to done, done because politicians are more interested in staying elected than they are serving the people. Okay, you can just say at some point, okay, take for instance, um, well, I don't want to say too much. All right, but look, at you got people that are getting nuclear, uh, war, uh, nuclear capabilities, and here we are just kind of pandering around in a weak position and when we should be leading as a nation and we're so fiscally irresponsible that we can't even strengthen our army to have a, a global influence and I'll behave. All right, that's just politics, right? It's just whether or not you believe in America's empire or whatever. 
uh, or something like that. All right, so the more you learn about the realities of government and the corruptness that kind of pervades everything, you can just get to the point where you're like, there's nothing that can be done. Knowledge, did anyone ever tell you that the more you learn, the more you're going to be frustrated, the more you're going to be hurt? And at some point, you're just going to say, man, it's going to all go up in a ball of flame and it'll be over. Somebody's going to carry a dirty nuke into the United States and it's going to be over, right? And you feel that way some way, sometimes, and that's what uh, Solomon said. Uh, I'm going to try to understand life through wisdom, but if you don't have, at the end of the day, this view that ultimately God's in charge, and no matter what this nation does, God can take care of me and my family and the church and see us through, there is no way that you can make sense of life. All right, and that's uh, what he's saying there. Okay? Uh, So uh, where can life be found? Look at what Mark Twain said. He says, uh, you don't know uh, what it is that you want, but it just barely makes your heart ache to want it so. So he's saying, where can life be found? He says, look, how many of you know Mark Twain was a brilliant guy, right? Incredible writer, incredible success at some level, even though I know you would hopefully have serious issues with Mark Twain. But at the end of the day, he's saying, look, I don't even know what I want. I've experienced so much in life, and I don't even know what I want, but it just makes my heart ache to want it so. Right? Or, or like you uh, 2 wrote in their song, one of their songs, he says, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. All right, what's that? Look, have they experienced things? That's an incredible philosophical point. I, I've experienced tons of things in success and money and fame and fortune. It's like Kurt Cobain at the top of his career, forgetting the dated reference, but Kurt Cobain at the top of his career ends up committing suicide. Why? Because it's empty. And even though they're trying to find something to make life worth living, they have no meaning. That's what's uh, being sold to us, which is a bill of goods in the world. All right, so what does this mean? In everyone, and by the way, this is a very, very powerful evangelism tool. In everyone is an irrepressible desire for something deep inside of us. It's called eternity. And and you've heard me talk about C.S. Lewis and the object of longing and the passing of time. and, And look how she's grown, right? You remember that illustration? Do you remember that? Oh, well, let's just dive in. C.S. Lewis has, has it best in his, I think, in expressing it one way in terms of longing. He says, we're constantly shocked by one, the constant of our universe. He said, what's the constant of our universe? The passing of time. We say things, he says, all the time that really shouldn't make sense to us. Um, wow, has it been so long? Or look how, look how they've grown, like my son. Or, or uh, you know, has it, has it been so long since we saw each other? Things like that. He said, we're shocked by the one constant of our universe, the passing of time, and we shouldn't be shocked at it. He said, it would be like a fish being constantly shocked by the wetness of water. He said, it would make no, no sense because that's all the fish knows. He says, unless one day he was destined to become a land creature. All due respect to that. You know. He says, in the same way, The human beings being shocked by the passage of time shows that we're built for more. We're built for eternity, and we can never be satisfied in this life. That's why Solomon says at one point he's placed eternity in our hearts. Okay, and that's what uh, he's talking about, and that's what drives people. So here's the real question that's left. You can find it reflected in books and materials and movies and, and, and uh, TV shows. Forget the references. I, I wish I could just bring an example in plays and current books and literature and things like that to show you. This is the real question that's left. When you have no God, this is, what you, this is the only question left. Is life worth the pain of living? Right? And that's, uh, what it's, that's why uh, Ernest Hemingway Uh, American uh, writer, shot himself. And this is uh, what Hemingway said. Life is just a dirty trick. A short journey from nothingness to nothingness. There is no remedy for uh, anything in life. Man's destiny in the universe is like a colony of ants on a burning log. Right? That's what what he's saying. He's quoting Camus. He said, life is like a, a... a uh, colony of ants on a, floating in a vast ocean, a burning log in a vast ocean. And this is what Hemingway said. Why would I want to suffer and get old? 
I'm going to go out on the top of my life, and life is not worth living. Why? Because he couldn't find something deeper in life. Look, I'm going to tell you, there's nothing out there in the secular worldview that brings meaning and purpose and the ability to face life if you divorce yourself from the eternal. Okay? Okay. So are there answers? I I wish I had time to go through. I I better not. Uh, We're already at 25 minutes. I better uh, rush. All right, there are candidates that uh, Solomon lists, and, and this book is two to 3,000 years old, uh, but the, these examples are incredibly current. All right, so if you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 1, this is basically what he lines out. He's going to show you uh, the things that, that the world says, or, or life lived under the sun says, is worth uh, living. He says option number one is to try everything that experience is the key to life. And, in, and you read it. I wish we had time, but I don't. We don't have time. You read it. It's, it sounds like everything that you would see in the earliest, uh, this is the earliest version of Vanity Fair. You think it's new? It's not new. Solomon addressed that in his writing. Or Cosmopolitan or Fortune Magazine or GQ. All of these things were competing for their, uh, their attention and for their belief. Uh, for instance, it's, it's what I call the pursuit of pleasure. Or what one man has called the MTV version of life. That life should be some type of perpetual uh, spring break. That we can just, you know, party and and we can have enough party to where we'll just have a, let's just have some fun and cut loose and go out there and and, and guess what? We can find the answer to life. It's an experience. Okay? As someone had spray painted on a college wall. He said, life is a waste of time. And time is a waste of life. So let's all get wasted and have the time of our life. And there it is. It's, you know, the party. It's the, it's the next high. It's the next uh, a big drug scene. So guess what? Does that answer life? Have you ever had to deal with the cleanup crew of what goes on in the spring break? The friendships that are destroyed? The venereal diseases? The, the rampant sexuality where people have lost entire nights? Okay, it doesn't answer uh, the deep questions of life. He says, okay, well, if that doesn't work, let's look at option number two. Now, I wish I had time to read through all that. You read through it. Um, it's, it's right there in the text. Get everything. That's what he said. I, I had all these projects. I had all of these things that I missed, all this wealth, all of these great uh, uh, things that I've done in terms of reaching out to other nations. And, and what you can do is, uh, guess what? Get all the projects, get all the possessions, get all the stuff of life. And isn't that what we're taught kind of from the beginning in American culture? That getting the stuff is what life is all about. In Ecclesiastes 2, 4 through 7, he punches that right, right in the face. And he says this way, uh, uh, you know, he that gets the most toys, what? Wins. How many of you have heard that? All right. He that gets the most toys still has to die. And you don't get to take anything with you. And the question is, at the end of life, What's, what, will, what will we ultimately face? And this is uh, what he says. Uh, I, I, w- I wish we had time to read those verses, but I'll leave that to you on your own time. He says it's the pursuit of wealth. Maybe we could be like Bill Gates, and that's what one man has called it, the Bill Gates version of life. You can be the young and up-and-coming Illuminati. You can be in the circles of influence. Work yourself to the top. And maybe you can be the top of some college and be the best brain in that college and and be the expert to speak on all those issues and go to all the conferences. But guess what? It doesn't matter how wise you get. You still have to face death. And you can build great things and you can amass wealth and leave it for the next generation who will destroy it. And then what was the meaning of your life? For instance, the founders of our country built something great, and now this generation is, in in past generations, is trashing it and giving it all away. I think it was Jefferson said, every generation lends to paternalism. We want the government to get bigger and bigger and bigger and take care of us instead of the freedom that made our country great. All right, and so you can build something great and leave it to your children or the next generation, and they can ultimately destroy it. And then what use all your hard work? Without eternity, there's no way to make sense of even standing for right or trying to build great things uh, because it's only left up, up to you. So the young and up-and-coming Illuminati, you can be in the movers or the shakers, or maybe you can go shopping, just get some more toys. You know, 
I have a sister-in-law, Jennifer, if you're listening, I apologize again. I use her as my illustration. They come up for uh, Christmas, and man, can they shop. I try to be good, Sam. You're married, man. We're, you got any other? Oh, yes, Brother Reagan. I try to be good. Yeah, you want to go shopping? Sure, I'll go with you. I don't want to go shopping, but I'll go with you. <laughs> All right, and so it's like when the, when the uh, going gets tough, the tough go shopping, right? Or, or I shop, therefore I am. I think that's my sister-in-law Jennifer's mantra in life. I'm just kidding, Jennifer. Okay, she's going to listen to this. I'm going to be in trouble. Okay, all right, so shopping. So the more stuff you have, guess what? The happier you're going to be. Does anybody believe that? Of course not. Uh, look at what um, uh, Rocker, somebody asked uh, Rockefeller this question. He was the first American b- billionaire, by the way, uh, and they asked him this question. A reporter said, how much money is enough? And this is what his commentary was. Just a little bit more. Always just a little bit more. You'll never be satisfied with the pursuit of money because it never ends. And you can never have enough. How much is enough? A million, two million, a billion, two billion? When does it stop, the pursuit? When did you end up in the place of happiness? Because guess what? There are millionaires that commit suicide too. There are, there, you can go on up in Carmel right now and there are people that have all, way more money than you and they want happiness in their marriage and life. And you can have somebody in this church filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost that has more meaning and more satisfaction and more peace at night when they lay their head on their bed in their apartment that they're renting than somebody in a mansion. Because that's not the answer to life uh, either. All right, or uh, how about the pursuit of illicit uh, activity? I call this the Hugh Hefner view of life. Maybe we can, uh, pardon me, this is... Hyphen age and college and career, so buckle up. Maybe we can all be bunnies or be bunny worshipers and uh, just go out there, visit, and have some fun and, you know, just have more and more. Uh, uh, the answer might be 24-7 indulgent in, in, in sex or illicit behavior. Does that, does that, guess what? That doesn't deliver, right? That doesn't give people happiness. Uh, you've heard me reference this, but there was a, a Victoria's Secrets model interviewed in GQ magazine. And she said, everything about me is fake. Everything about me is either surgically altered or enhanced. And she said at the end of the article, even my heart is fake. And what was she saying? If people knew the real me, they wouldn't love me. Look, if that, there's no answer there. If the icons of our age in terms of beauty can't be satisfied, there's something desperately wrong in the culture. Because you can't find a meaning even there. Okay, all right, so let's look at what Chesterton said about, uh, <laughs> uh, about uh, pleasure. He said this, and I think his little dictum, his little adage is proven true. I think it is. He says, meaningless does not come from being weary of pain. I would say, I would, I would nuance that a little bit. It doesn't come from only being weary of pain, but being weary of pleasure, all right? Uh, Soren Kierkegaard said it this way. He was a philosopher, and the the greatest principle of his life was, in fact, uh, a pleasure. It was his guiding principle for his philosophy and his life. But look at what he said later in life when he said uh, this pursuit of pleasure had radically uh, failed him. Look at what he says. In the bottomless ocean of pleasure, I have sounded in vain for a spot to cast anchor. I, I've given myself the pleasure, pleasure and I've looked for a place to moor my life and to find meaning and purpose. He says, but I have sounded in vain. It was all empty. Vanity of vanities. It's the same word. I have felt the almost irresistible power with which one pleasure drags another after it. The kind of adulterated enthusiasm which is capable of pr- producing the boredom, the torment which follows. He says, I know what it's like to just sing another pleasure and another pleasure and another pleasure only to get there at the You can only watch so many movies. You can only have so much stuff and so, so many moments of pleasure. And at the end of the day, you get to that boredom and you realize this is all empty. And that's what uh, is driving uh, our culture. Or as uh, I think it was uh, Chesterton talked about again. He talked about the problem of pleasure. So he says, ultimately, I found out pleasure is just another way to pain. It's uh, just uh, the pathway to pain from a different approach. 
right? And I, I'm, I'm just about done. He said, here's the cultural fix today. Our culture says this, numb yourself. This is the best it has to offer. It says, if I can keep myself entertained half the time, or maybe if I can uh, keep myself doped up or sexed up long enough, or, or maybe just through sports, or anything that keeps my emotions neutralized, then guess what? I won't have to deal with the real questions of life. And I'll just, I'll throw this in as a challenge to us. Most of the time, apostolics do this through entertainment. But the question is, is, is this working? When we ask questions like this, who and what am I? Do I have an eternal destiny or not? You don't just see these questions. You feel them in the book of Ecclesiastes. And that's why Ecclesiastes is such a powerful book. Because it forces us to deal with the lies of our culture. And they are lies. You can't find meaning there. It presses in on us to say, yes, my life is meant for more. And I know every one of us in here, you have to be honest. Every one of us in here is living in the culture of today. And every one of us is dealing and wrestling with the spirit of the age. And there is no one, you hear me, not even this preacher, no one that doesn't feel those temptations. And they compete for our attention. They compete for our affection. And I, I wish I had time to uh, talk about uh, the parable of a madman. Do, do you have, can I have five minutes, ten minutes? Okay. Okay, I promise to finish. All right, there's a great little witnessing tool that I want to give to you. And I gave it, I, I talked to that young man uh, who was talking to my niece, Lauren. And this is what I said. Look, existentialism, the, just the belief that you can make purpose, your own purpose in life, because there is no ultimate purpose. It failed. You had guys like Kierkegaard and other philosophers that said, we can will to power and make our own meaning and find happiness. But really, the pessimistic side of existentialism won. All that means is this. People that tried to make their own meaning without God and build philosophies to do that failed. And Nietzsche was right. I said, read Nietzsche's parable of a madman. And he, he did. And then he texts back and said, if you come to Louisiana, I want to talk with you because I think you're right. And this is, what, uh, this is Nietzsche's parable. Nietzsche was a staunch atheist. And this is, this is a very, very powerful parable. This is what he says. Have you not heard of that man, madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran into the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Now, what is Nietzsche saying? In this parable, Nietzsche sees himself as the madman. And he sees the place where he's going in and provoking laughter. He sees that as the people of his day. You ready? The rest of the atheists and the people who have rejected God. He says, uh, uh, they, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost, asked one? Or did he lose his way like a child, asked another? Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage? Has he immigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. Now, can you see any parallels here with what I, Elijah did at Mount Carmel? I think that's intentional, by the way, with Nietzsche. All right, he says, the madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. All right, and that's what Nietzsche says his philosophy is doing. You're going to deal with this. He says, whether is God, he cried, I will tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. How, but how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What are we doing when we uh, unchain this earth from its sun? Now, what is he saying? He's saying, we've messed with everything. And, and he's going to talk about what they've lost in just a moment. He says, uh, whether is it moving now, speaking of the earth, whether are we moving away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually backward, sideways, forward in all direction? Is there still any up and down? Are we not straying as though through an infinite nothing? What he's saying is this. Is there any right or wrong? Are we headed anywhere in terms of purpose? Absolutely not. We've lost everything, he says. Uh, he says, is there an up or down? Are we not straying? Is through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night conti uh, continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing yet as the noise of grave diggers who are burying God? Do we not smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? What does he mean like that? He said, there's going to be death and decay now. People aren't going to be good. 
Why would they be good? There's no God. There's no hell. There's no eternal judgment and death and decay. And when you look out in our culture, because there is no right and wrong, and there is no God, and there is no justice, all you see is death and decay in our culture. The results of a life lived under this, under the sun. And he says, do we not smell nothing of the uh, divine decomposition? God's too decomposed. God is dead. God remains dead. And uh, we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves? How can we make sense of life? The murderer of all murderers. What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What, what water is there to cleanse uh, for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? We have to have some way of making people behave. We have to have some, some way of, of, of creating justice. He says, so we're going to have to invent now some type of sacred game to make sense of life and to normalize behavior. What festivals of atonement? He says, is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Most, uh, must we not ourselves not become God simply to appear, appear worthy of it? Yes, we've stepped in the stead of God. That's what he's saying. There has never been a greater deed, and whosoever is born after us for the sake of this deed, he will belong to a higher history than all history hitherto. We've changed everything when we lost God. You lost your moorings. Okay? Uh, I, I won't re, uh, read all of the rest of this. Here the madman fell silent and looked up at his listeners, and they too were silent and stared at him in astonishment. He said, this is the problem. When you said there was no God, you don't realize what you did. You lost the rights of, to ever norm behavior again. Last, he threw down his lantern on the ground and broke it into pieces and it went out. I've come too early, he said. You don't realize what you've done when you say there is no God. That's what he's saying. My time is not yet. This tremendous event is still on its way, still wandering in. It's not yet reached the ears of men. Lightning and thunder require time. The light of the stars require time. Deeds, though done, still require time to be seen and heard. You don't understand what you've done. He says, this deed is still more distant from them than the more distant stars, and yet they have done it themselves. You don't realize what you've done. And Nietzsche was right. He said, ultimately... Because you've lost God, you've lost everything. Let me give you one more uh, a song by uh, Cadence Call. It says, there's tarnish on the golden rule, and I want to jump from this ship of fools. Show me a place where hope is young and a place, uh, a people who are not afraid to love. This world has nothing for me, and this world has everything. All that I could want and nothing that I need. This world is making me drunk Our, uh, on the spirit's of fear. So when he says, who will go? I am nowhere near. This world has nothing for me, and this world has everything, all that I could want, and nothing that I need. Now there it is. There's the challenge to us tonight. The only life, this is what Solomon says, the only life worth living can't be found here alone. The key to life is not in this life. It's in the next and when you understand that, then you can face the, this life with all of its pain, with all of its corruption, and know ultimately, yes, there is a day when everything's going to make sense. Stand with me tonight. Here it is, the last thing that Solomon says. Exodus chapter 12, or Exodus, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. He spent the entire book trying on these philosophies, trying to make sense of life. And he says, here's the conclusion of the whole matter in the last two verses. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. He's saying, look, life lived without God is vanity. But if you live with God in view, then life is rich with eternal meaning and purpose. So what are you saying, Brother Kilman? Here's my challenge. You have to verse yourself a little bit in this so that you can look someone in the eye and say, you can't live without God. You can't make sense of life without God. And here's the second part. The things, the same type of competition out there in the world, that worldview is alive today. Just live life for pleasure. And being caught up in those same things. They're like quicksand, isn't it, Sam? 
It can just suck you in and drain your life of meaning and purpose. And not only should you witness to people and say God can give you an incredible life of meaning, we should be careful that we're not being sucked into the same things as well. All right, would you bow your heads with me? God, we're living in complex times, and there are people that are looking for answers. Lord, and we feel the sting and temptation and the oppression of worldliness that comes and competes for our own affection. Help us to give our life to the things that really matter. It's not the pursuit of pleasure and parties, and, that, and there's nothing wrong with having fun, Lord, but that's not an end. There's nothing wrong with amassing wealth, but that, that's not an end in itself. There's nothing wrong even with our own sexuality, but out of bounds. And making that the end of everything, God, just is so empty. Help us not to believe the lies of our day. Help us to live life with the fullest extent of what it means to be a child of God. Be careful to praise you in Jesus' name. Be strong. Witness to people on campuses. Take this understanding. I don't know how many of you are there or you have friends that are there. Make sure that you can share this truth. And I promise you, God will use you to open some doors and rescue people from the lies that would trap them. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. We got some goodies back there. We'll